This message comes from NPR sponsor Hulu. Don't miss the new docuseries Black Twitter, a people's history. From memes to movements, see how this powerful online community shapes culture and society. Black Twitter, a people's history, is now streaming on Hulu. A quick note before the show. This podcast contains explicit language and strong opinions. Be forewarned. Hi, everyone. I'm Ann Powers, a critic at NPR Music, and I am joined today by two of my favorite opinionators, Tom Heisinger hey, and Sheldon Pierce. Hello. How are y'all doing today? Uh, we're recording on the day that the Oscar nominations came out, and so I have to ask you the most important opinion of the day, which is uh, how do you feel about Ryan Gosling <laughs> getting a nom for the greatest song written in the 21st century? I'm just Ken. I'm just Ken. I'm just hoping he gets the opportunity to perform it at the at the stage show. Um, I, I think that would truly be a moment. Yes, with with that hair, um, you know, and I the have sweatshirt and the sweatshirt, right? Right. He seems to love the bit, really. Uh, throughout the press junket, he was playing into it so hard. I watched it with my mom, and she said, "Are those really his abs?" <laughs> we had to Google it. <laughs> Well, I, I want to see a, a Ryan Gosling, Billie Eilish, like, throw down. Or maybe they could do, like, a, a La La Land-style dance. That's that's my hope. Well, we'll see. I, on a more serious <laughs> note, I, I, I've not heard all the scores, but um, I, I thought there was a really a lot of excellent music in Killers of the Flower Moon. Not only in the score by the late Robbie Robertson, um, who has roots as a First Nation Canadian, but also with all of that vintage music that was in there that was... I'm sure chosen with the help of uh, music consultant George Traculius. So I, I was I was pleased because there's so much music. It runs under almost every scene. And I want the um, amazing score that Jerskin Fendrix wrote for Poor Things to win. So uh, that'll be the battle you and I, Tom, will have to okay. have to face <laughs> off that night because I just love the quirkiness and the weirdness of that of that score. Well, this is nominally our New Music Friday podcast, and we are going to talk about some of the great new music that's out today for everyone to listen to and love. But we're also going to ask a crucial question. What is the point of music writing? Well, this is a question that's hot on the heels of another question a lot of people are asking these days, which is, is music journalism, music criticism as we know it, going to survive in light of the many... Uh, jobs lost and and forums lost in in recent history. Um, big news last week. Pitchfork, the much loved and sometimes hated music website that uh, grew from a blog founded by a record store clerk into the number one sort of authority in popular music writing, uh, ha- was absorbed into GQ, and much of its staff was laid off. There's also been layoffs at the LA Times. It's just a rough time for people who believe in criticism, and we're going to delve into these issues around this crisis and, and talk a little bit about how music writing might be changing. But before we get into these uh, central questions of, of our own lives, let's talk about the thing we love most and the reason why we do what we do, which is music itself. Each of us has brought in a record that, uh, that we're really interested in this week, and Tom, I'm wondering what you brought for us. Oh, I've got a good one. And you know, the the news about Pitchfork aside, 
um, the albums are just going to keep dropping Friday after Friday after Friday. So um, it's a juggernaut that will not stop. So um, I'm happy to talk about this one. Um, it's a trio of musicians. Um, the fearless violinist Patricia Kopachinskaya, clarinetist Reto Bieri, and pianist Polina Lashenko. And, you know, speaking of kind of like the fate of the album review, um, it strikes me as a little ironic that this particular album um, is set up in a way to give the listener a very kind of album-like experience in that they take sections of a longer suite of Francis Poulenc from 1947 and they pepper them throughout the album as little palate cleansers or like a little talisman or something. So among the larger pieces... Um, there is Bella Bartok's Contrasts, a piece he wrote in 1938 for jazz clarinetist Benny Goodman. And so right after that, Bartok comes this, this little tango movement from Poulenc's Invitation to the Castle. interesting how they structured this time. Do you have any idea about how what the process was? Because it's kind of unusual, right? No, no idea. <laughs> I mean, it's very carefully programmed, and yet to me it feels pretty off the cuff. It's yeah. like like the musicians just like got together for a jam session and just said, you know, all right, we're going to decide on this sequence of music kind of on the fly, and and that's what happens. And and I I love that about the. The record and also the playing feels very, um, they're willing to take risks and it just feels like a very happy event with very cool music. Yeah, I mean, it's funny you mentioned that it feels like the playing is sort of off the cuff. I know the album is meant to realize a long-standing desire to create entertaining music that could be played at both a Hasidic gathering or in a concert hall. And I'd say mission accomplished with that. I think you could describe <laughs> a lot of the music almost as jaunty in a way, especially in the exchanges yeah. between violin. And I, I actually read some reviews of the performances that preceded this recording. And a common thread was both the virtuosity of the players, but also to Tom's point about risk-taking and adventurousness of this sort of charted journey. And I don't think the recording loses any of that excitement. You know, that makes me think about how artists are also critics and curators in a way. I, I recently saw Cecile McLaurin Salvant uh, for the second time in a year, which is a privilege. And thinking about how that great jazz singer puts together her sets, you know, how, how her performances are in a way commentaries on the canon. And it strikes me that this is this recording is kind of a similar act, you know, it's, it's like the artist as commentator within the work. It's interesting that you say that because in the album booklet, Patricia has this great passage about trying to capture the remnants of a lost homeland. And towards the end of that passage, she says... These fragments, images, feelings, the elusiveness of the past can be found in my perception only in musical form. 
in heart-wrenching Bartok pizzicatos and fragile harmonics, on the edge of silence where the sounds of this world cease and there remains only the lost echo of ourselves, in the silence, in the unsaid, only sensed. And it does feel like she is trying to capture something particular in this music that represents her. And so when I listen to the trio's performance of Contrast, it feels like a whole world is being opened up to me, like the world as she perceives it. Um, the, the flits of sound in those quiet moments, uh, the heart-wrenching pizzicatos, as she puts it, but also the great many sort of dynamic shifts throughout that are, are really, really powerful. And she's not afraid to make her violin sound like an old squeeze box or a beautiful <laughs> concert instrument playing a Tchaikovsky concerto or something like that. But she's she's a monster player and really one of the best interpreters of the Bartok music for violin. So, uh, yeah, a real spirit of kind of improvisation going on here as well. So it, it yeah. makes for a delightful album just to put it on and let it run all the way through. A real album's album in a way. And I love that the compositions in general that, that she's connecting on this record, that they're connecting, it represents 20th century classical music's encounters with popular music. Like you mentioned, Benny Goodman. And I love the openness of these compositions that encourage this kind of performance. So, Sheldon, you also have a record that kind of makes a world, I think. Yes. Uh, a, a rapper who really uh, inhabits his own space. Can you tell us a little bit about what you brought? Yeah, my record is by the Buffalo rapper Benny the Butcher. It's called Everybody Can't Go. It's funny we're talking about criticism because he is definitely an album artist. Um, he's he's not a groundbreaking artist, but he traffics in a very specific kind of like classicist New York street rap in the vein of like Wu-Tang Clan members like Raekwon or like Mob Deep or more recently like Arak Marciano. He can't match his predecessors for skill, but I think he is an underdog in a way previous Coke rappers weren't. There's like a certain amount of chess beating to be sure, but he's not an extravagant kingpin or a no-nonsense cutthroat. Uh, he's an aspiring businessman in a lot of this stuff, subscribing to the Jay-Z archetype of the corporate thug. Um, in the opening moments, he talks about buying stocks. There, there are comments about leaving money in escrow. And there's even a line where he, he says he, he bought so much coke from cartels that they treat him like a shareholder. So there's this idea <laughs> of the, 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 the street business being in line with sort of corporate ethics. I mean, both of them can be amoral in the same sense. Um, but he never forgets his proximity to street life. There's a song called TMVTL. Um, it has many staples of the Griselda label that he represents. It's straight bars. You can barely tell that the hook is a hook. And there's this different cinematic beat for each of these three sort of different street tragedies, which I think is the kind of stuff that he does best. Let me tell you what happened next, okay? Same mother, two different pops, two brothers from two different blocks is the plot. Some other shit, one a hustler, one in the stocks, that's Lee. Kind of tried running the streets, but it didn't pop, change his life around. He get props for getting out before it got hot. He the oldest, his little bro was just colder. He in the Glocks, he remind me of a nigga I'm sending through if I get the drop. I like that little nigga. fucking on the same bitch, don't even know. She ain't low. Crib out in the burbs. You know, we laughed at some of the other things that you're talking about, about... Uh, about you know buying so much coke and things in escrow. I mean, but this is a like you said, this is a very tough street 
song. I mean, he starts out saying, um, "I'm from where tragedy made us strengthen," yeah. and it's it's a visceral portrait of a very tough existence out on the streets. There's scenes of prison, murder, drugs, guns. I mean. <laughs> Uh, and then he mentions that bullet in the leg, which I think he was actually shot in the leg in real yeah. life at some point. So, you know, hitting pretty close to home, all with, I think, you know, very interesting beats and sounds that you don't hear in other places and spaces. Yeah, I definitely think that, as you were saying, Sheldon, the, the song structures, the way the hooks are just sort of like embedded into the rest of the music. I don't know if that makes them not be hooks. <laughs> I don't know what constitutes a hook right. in a Griselda mix, right. but uh, anti-hooks and anti-hooks, right? But I don't know. Run with me on this one, guys. Like it makes me think about sort of early '70s cinema, my favorite era in American cinema. You know, it's. Not to reference Mean Streets endlessly, as everyone who talks about American cinema does, but is this the Mean Streets of, uh, of Coke rap? I don't know. <laughs> Maybe. I mean, it, it is it is sort of operating in that vein, and I do think a lot of this kind of New York rap specifically rep, like references that kind of cinema, both in sort of sound and in lyric, but also in like atmosphere. Everybody can't go and you probably won't make it. I whipped that powder to glaciers and found the oasis. My history is street dealing narcotics on paper. This work I'm cutting more times than Kyrie been traded. Yeah. I was one foot out the game after that freestyle with flex. I was one foot in the door at Jay-Z house for West. Now you see how I clean house and see wild success. A rapper never reached out, he either see now with death. I'm getting big in the paint. I'm all rebounds and text. It's definitely reaching for that in the way that it feels. Um, and it's sort of interesting, Tom, that you pointed out how his art sort of imitates his life in this way where the, the street aspect of it is sort of inextricable from the rap aspect of it. But there's this song called One Foot, which talks about mm. managing the transition from being the kind of trapper that exists in his songs and also being the rapper that he is and the friction between right. the two, which I think sort of puts him stuff at odds with someone like Pusha T, who is like very confident that both of those things not only coexist, but are of the same vein. Uh, Benny sort of sees that it's difficult to live both of those lives at the same time. And I think a lot of his stuff sort of wrestles with the tragedy that is inherent with like being a famous rap star, but right. Trying to live in both worlds and not yeah. screw either of them up. Right. The, the difficulties of like still staying connected to the community you grew up with right. and moving into this new tax bracket essentially and trying to <laughs> navigate both of those spaces at the same time. It comes with a lot of growing pains. I mean, he's seen a lot. He's, he's lived through a lot. He was a sort of late bloomer also, and he's been almost prolific in the time that he's worked. There's a lyric about how he's like almost 10 years into his like 10 year plan essentially he was like i promised you guys 10 years and i'm almost there that's how long i've been chugging so a lot of his music is about the grind about sort of striving and pushing and aspiring for more um but he never sort of loses sight of all that was left in his way i had one foot in and one foot out one foot in and one foot out you really can't do both because you will blow you gotta watch that ah, ah, ah.
So that's Benny the Butcher. Everybody can't go. We have a real variety in our picks this week. Uh, we're moving from Poulenc to uh, Buffalo rap to Texas singer-songwriter Katie Kirby. That's who I brought in. You think it's ethically suspicious to bring someone into a world like this But you've got the best smile anyone could ask you in someone who's at a different point in her career than Benny, uh, a young woman. This is her second album, and it's called Blue Raspberry. Um, essentially, narratively, it's like a queer buildings roman. Uh, while she was writing these songs, Katie realized that she is attracted to women, and many of them uh, go pretty deep into, uh, into the details of her adventures in the zone of love and sex. And I really love that. I love her honesty. But what I love the most about this album is the sound and particularly the way that her vocals are pushed up to the front and the melodies are so strong. And there's just a lot of space to appreciate her stories. She's, you know, she's a really fearless songwriter and she is swinging for the fences with the with these songs. I think she has kind of a Dorothy Parker sting to her lyrics. When I think about the current, like, singer-songwriter space, this stuff feels almost brighter and more robust than a lot of the stuff in that mode. I mean, I think about an artist like Lomelda or like Florist, like the, it almost seems like those voices are hiding, like you have to lean in a little bit to hear what they're saying. I think this stuff is even sort of more melodic and hook forward than like the Julia Jacqueline stuff. Right, because she's because she tracks her vocals so much. Like yeah. she multi-tracks her vocals, Julia does. Yeah. But what I love about the way the vocals are produced on this record is the almost, I don't know enough about studio tricks or whatever, but it almost feels like they're kind of compressed. They're very cl clear. Yeah, it, it does seem like the intent was to make sure that this information is scanning directly toward the listener. Like, there, there's a very heavy focus on the writing of this record. Um, and you had mentioned previously before that there's been a push for vibes, the way that things feel, the tone and the texture of them. And this is a clear return to writing. Like, listen to what I am saying because my story is important. For me, the record just sounded so, I could, there's one word that just kept coming up to mind and that is fresh. One advantage of that type of production and how her voice is set in the mix is that, you know, you don't really need to consult a lyric sheet that much. Right. I mean, you can hear all the lyrics. The diction is fine, and um, which is cool, I think. Another thing that was interesting to me is that here's another very thoughtful singer-songwriter who grew up in a very religious background, I'm thinking of people like um, Julian Baker and there's some others out there that are working out that come from a very Christian evangelical background and are making really, um, and, and are part of a queer community and making really, um, really fantastic music. Ethel Kane, another one. Yeah, Sheldon, we, uh, you and I had a conversation about the song, Wait, Listen. Uh, we were talking about uh, an F-bomb she deploys in that. She called me a feast when 
Fuck me like you thought you did. I it just cut, it hits right when it needs to in both the flow of the song and in the, the way that the narrative is deployed. It comes just at the right moment. It's just so perfectly executed. And, it, and I bring it up. I bring it up because Tom, you're talking about her breaking away from evangelism or evangelical childhood, and and that f bomb is used to talk about what the f bomb means. It's not just a curse. It's yeah. a song about having sex, and I love the yeah. the way that the intimate details in that song and throughout this record feel so natural. Um, I don't know. It's like she's able to observe herself while. She is immersed in these emotions and in these physical sensations. She has a great uh, way of sort of like being a little distanced and right there at the same time. You know, in that way, I, I always reference the roaches. They are like my favorite <laughs> artists of all time. If you don't know them, listeners, amazing sister trio who uh, started recording back in the 70s. But she she reminds me a little bit of of Maggie Roach that way, mm. just a mm-hmm. way to like just kill you with the you know with the perceptive line about the devastating emotional experience, but also make a joke, you know. Yeah, I love the interplay of a song like Cubic Zirconia and mm-hmm. and Salt Crystal. All of this imagery of precious minerals, and they both sort of like mirror each other in this way, and they're playing into this metaphor of accepting a substitute for the real thing. Which also kind of feeds into what you're mentioning, Sheldon, about this kind of line in some of the songs between the authentic and the the fake. Yeah. And she's trying to figure out herself in this record, right. her authentic self in this record, too. Cubic zirconia, baby, no one can tell When they're up against your thought, you know they shine just as well Fresh off the market, but you're nobody's prize Magazine quiz called you apple shape You look to me like dollar sign Right, and on the subject of, like, her queer identity and, um... I don't know. I, I I don't know how deep to get here on like feminist theory. But, Go but, deep. You know, there is this. <laughs> That's an Ann Powers is, special. <laughs> well, there is there is an you know there there is a, a thread within feminist thinking about how women and women's sexuality is always deceptive. You know, yeah. you can go read a French feminist like Lucy Rigari on this subject. Um, and I think the cubic zirconia metaphor that runs through several of these songs. Yeah. There's a song called Cubic Zirconia. It, um, there's, there seems to be a character, Cubic Zirconia, who may also be Alexandria, uh, a lover. Yeah. That image of something that is so beautiful and seems so real. 
Right. But, you know, maybe isn't. And then there's also a great image where she, what does she say? Something about like, I'm glitter crushed under your heel. There's all <laughs> these images of like, like something beautiful being destroyed, something real being proven fake. Yeah. And uh, yeah, it's, it goes deep while still being completely fun to listen to. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's Katie Kirby, Blue Raspberry. Um, oh, wow. And I just have to say, Blue Raspberry, what is that? That's a flavor that's, like, not real. <laughs> wow. Okay, Katie Kirby, I'm impressed. Well, I love these three records we've already talked about. I feel like my ears are already full, but there's another release this week that I think we need to address. <laughs> It's from the biggest band of the 21st century. Oh, wait, it's not from that band. Or is it from is that it? band? What is what is, is real? <laughs> Katie Kirby, tell us what is real. We're talking about the new record from The Smile. It's called Wall of Eyes. Uh, it's the second album from this group. Uh, Who's in this group, Sheldon? Tell us about this band. There's like some new guys. I don't know. They're from like <laughs> South Jersey something. Yeah, this band, uh, you, you might have heard of some of its members. It features, of course, Radioheads, Tom York, and Johnny Greenwood. This is the first Radiohead side project to feature multiple members. And it features the former drummer from the band Sons of Kimmet, Tom Skinner. And, you know, I've been a fan of this band since their pandemic debut, A Light for Attracting Attention, um, that record felt a little bit like a tour of old Radiohead mode specifically. Um, in his review for Pitchfork, uh, the great Ryan Domball wrote that the greatest proof that it wasn't an actual Radiohead album was that it sounded so much like previous Radiohead albums, since Radiohead <laughs> albums always seem to have this penchant <laughs> for reinvention and i think the reason that the smile is is like it's so uncanny that that connection to the the, the proper band is that tom and johnny i mean they don't feel beholden to being radiohead in these songs um mm. they are who they are obviously when they work together so the music has a certain shape but it doesn't share the expectations that come with being in that other band um, so they can do really anything with within that wide umbrella of sounds. And it feels like they're pulling from all different directions that Radiohead has existed in before. I mean, if I were crass, I would just say that it sounds like a Radiohead album with more interesting drums. <laughs> but no, no shade on Phil Selway, who's an amazing musician. But which is to say that it sounds great. But I mean, uh, the, the kind of the offbeat rhythm of the title track wall of eyes and you put it up against uh, house of cards my favorite song on in rainbows and those rhythms are strikingly similar you know i also noticed that in wall of eyes the 
The song Wall of Eyes, there is a verse that originally appeared in the printed version of the lyrics from the album King of Limbs. The line, let us raise our glasses to what we don't deserve, what we're not worthy of. Um, And I read that Tom York actually just brought his phone into the studio and kind of improvised these lyrics. And when you do that, you're inevitably going to like cull from your your past. You know what I mean? Right. You're, you're going to do that. Pull but from the subconscious. <laughs> you're semi, you're going to plagiarize yourself, which is completely <laughs> legal, by the way. I believe everyone should plagiarize themselves all the time. Don't let those thoughts die. But, um, but yeah, I mean, I, I sometimes wonder if this is like kind of a fun game for Tom and Johnny in, in terms of we can rethink ideas we had in previous Radiohead uh, projects. Uh, and maybe the trio format. I actually specifically wanted to ask you, Tom, as someone who covers the classical waterfront, what is the difference, you know, with having three people as opposed to a larger ensemble? And do you think that's one of the reasons why this is a freer, kind of freer sound for these guys? I think you, you're onto something there. I think the trio format makes makes the record sound a little a little looser, maybe a little bit more uh, air in it um i am a big fan of johnny greenwood's music for for the paul thomas anderson films and i have to say my my very favorite moment in wall of eyes is uh, speaks to that it's at uh five minutes and 30 seconds into the song bending hectic where you out of this really delicate instrumentation of guitar bass drums and vocal these these dissonant strings emerge and in the manner of Christoph Penderecki. And this is a very Johnny Greenwood signature move here because his music, especially for, like, There Will Be Blood, is very influenced by the Polish composer Christoph Penderecki, that whole sound world. And these strings, then, in the song, intensify, and then suddenly... This mammoth electric guitar wall of sound just careens through and takes over the final two minutes of the song, you know, and then it finally smolders down in that wonderful Radiohead kind of way, and the flame is suddenly gone, poof. And the song ends, and it's extraordinary. Well, that's a huge sound, and here we were just talking about a trio, which is like, should be making a small sound. I mean, they have, they, they have string section on this. They made the sound bigger they they open the doors of the smile a little bit what what kind of effect do you think that had on the band i mean i think this whole this this is maybe like the spookiest stuff uh, that they've done i mean tom is maybe among our foremost skeptics already but then you know johnny i think brought in a lot of sort of the eeriness that comes with his work as a composer to this record in particular um, I found this record to be slightly less sort of dynamically rhythmic than the first one. I think there are less, there's less focus on drums sort of thrashing through. Uh, even on the intro wall of eyes, it's more sort of pulled back and 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 uh, spectral. And then, I mean, you th- I think about the sort of glitched out fog of ghosts that closes under our pillows. Which brings to mind sort of yeah. like the futuristic terrors of the work of like filmmaker Alex Garland. There's a lot of I, I always I said on all songs that my favorite 
Radiohead is spooky Radiohead. <laughs> and I think they the, they pull like the spookiest stuff from across their work as individuals, as members of that band, and sort of lean into it. I mean, you think about Wall of Eyes as an as an image. It's very sort of disconcerting. There are lyrics about being tied up in half-truths and whining drones on a cold sea. I mean, and there's literally a song called I Quit. So it's like, they, they seem to be sort mm -hmm. of leaning very heavily into the, the current sense of disquiet and unease that surrounds us. I can go I'm not going to call Tom York like a jazz singer because <laughs> that would be foolish. But I do think there's a way he's, he, he, his approach to singing in this band is different too. And th that maybe, Sheldon, as to what you're saying, like they have created this, this space where they can, I don't know, not literally improvise, but where, where they can try on different aspects of the, the spooky radio head the even the anthemic radio head like there's a way that anthemic elements like tom in bending hectic they kind of like fade in and out i mean his voice is still such a powerful draw he doesn't need to labor over lyrics in the same way when his singing conveys mm. mm -hmm. so yeah. much of the emotion that he is trying to impart in his songs. I mean, there there is an extent where like literalism goes too far and just like sort of a voice in its own way can convey a feeling. And I think he has done that throughout his career and has only felt freer to pursue that in this music. Yeah, I think his voice is, um, you know, if you had to describe it, I would call it, you know, usually kind of a high-pitched, small, thin, reedy instrument. Um, you know, not exactly suited to wail out stadium anthems like, say, Bono can. Um, he's best suited to, right, the spooky, uh, introspective, uh, introspective, disaffected songs that Radiohead it, it makes a specialty of. And... And on this album, like um, the song, you know, You Know Me, I mean, he, he knows his limitations, I think, yeah. as a vocalist. And he's creative, and sometimes he uses his voice, you know, almost like an instrument, like another layer of synth yeah. in this song called yeah. I Quit, um, where the vocal lines are kind of floaty and they're drawn out really slowly. It's very distinctive. I'm not sure that anyone would say it's one of the best rock voices, uh, but but then, you know, being an opera geek, I can get pretty subjective about <laughs> these things. But um, don't get me wrong. I mean, I bigger, think you're right, though. bigger, <laughs> bigger is not. I gotta challenge you though, because like no, I, I was watching the Smile Tiny Desk, and I'm like, wow, look at Tom. He's got some vibrato. He's laying into some vibrato there. His like inner tenor is well, coming out. You know. <laughs> Yeah, he does. He does kind of wobble a little bit sometimes. <laughs> but I just wanted to make the point. Don't get me wrong. Bigger is not necessarily right, right. better. I mean, Billie Holiday did not have a very That's big great voice. She had a small voice, and look what she did with it. And and Tom York has a smallish voice, and he does a lot. Yeah, yeah I, I think the limitations of the voice are part of the appeal. Actually, I think that's. The, the flaw in it is what makes it unique and, and interesting. It's why nobody can replicate what he does. He's sort of 
inimitable. And, and as a result, his voice sort of works as a centering force amid everything that is happening. He always knows how to draw your attention. I do have one meta question before we leave behind this smile record, which is, do you think there is a necessity for Radiohead to continue? Um, why do you think the smile exists, you know, as a quote unquote side project? Why, you know, is it possible this will just be the band these guys are in in the future? And if not, what do we want from Radiohead after this uh, possibly convincing Radiohead semi facsimile? <laughs> Yeah, it's, I mean, it's funny. They, you, you could be forgiven for any Radiohead sort of accepting this album as a Radiohead album. Um, yeah. But I, I, I mean, my, my perception of it is if, if they want to make another Radiohead album, that's great, I'll take it. If they want to continue <laughs> to be The Smile, I'll take that too. I, I do think there is a certain sort of forward-thinking visionary thing that happens in Radiohead albums that doesn't happen in the Smile albums. I think the Smile albums are fit, like extremely competently produced, uh, very experimental in their own right. And to Tom's point, the drumming on it is, it's, it's bar none, like maybe some of the best stuff in the Radiohead discography. Um, but I do think Radiohead stuff always thinks more about what's next and the smile stuff seems to think too much about the what Radiohead stuff was, <laughs> what it's always been, what it represents to people. I, I think Radiohead has as a band has risked tearing itself apart in pursuit of like changing itself for the better. Right. So I, I, I would always sort of relish the opportunity to hear them try that again. But I mean the smile stuff is a, a welcome substitute if that's what they choose. Well, like like Sheldon, I'll, I'll take both because you know they're gonna ha Radiohead, the the band itself is probably go gonna want to make some more records only so that they can tour and mm -hmm. make some money, <laughs> yeah, and for big big very big stadium tours. And I'm and I'm hoping that you know the smile came to our tiny desk, and so I'm hoping that we can see the smile in uh, in the future in smaller venues because I'm tired of going to big <laughs> big arena shows so I'd love to see the smile in a thousand person you know auditorium anyway uh, so the thing about the smile and about Radiohead is that these are what you might call critics bands I mean Radiohead is more than that they're also massively popular mainstream rock stars but these are artists whose reputations have been made at least in part by media coverage and particularly by critical appreciation um in the wake of pitchfork being absorbed into gq uh thus possibly uh, completely rearranging the center of music writing in the 21st century, since Pitchfork really was was the center. I'm, I'm going to say is, still exists, the center. There's been a lot of talk about the death of criticism. And after the break, I would love for us to address this subject a little bit. We're not going to have a wake. We're not, we're not at a funeral. But we need to talk about criticism. So, uh, so let's go there after the break. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Hulu. Don't miss the new docuseries, Black Twitter, A People's History, from Onyx Collective and Hulu. 
Directed by Prentice Penny, executive producer of Insecure, Black Twitter, A People's History, tells the story of how Black voices found a new home online and blossomed into a force for change while laying down some hilarious tweets along the way. From the memes to the movements, see how this powerful community shapes culture, society, and politics. Black Twitter, A People's History, is now streaming on Hulu. This message comes from Capital One, offering commercial solutions you can bank on. Now more than ever, your business faces unique challenges and opportunities. That's why Capital One offers a comprehensive suite of financial services, all tailored to your short- and long-term goals. Backed by the strength and stability of a top-10 commercial bank, their dedicated experts work with you to build lasting success. Explore the possibilities at CapitalOne.com slash commercial, a member FDIC. Support for NPR and the following message come from NPR sponsor Allianz Travel Insurance. International travel can be life-changing, but an unexpected emergency can make your trip memorable for all the wrong reasons. Allianz Travel Insurance provides benefits for medical emergencies, trip cancellations, travel delays, and more. Get a quote at AllianzTravelInsurance.com. What does it mean to be Black in America? And NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, a collection of stories as varied, nuanced, and dynamic as the Black experience, you'll hear it means everything. Search NPR Black Stories, Black Truths wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Ann Powers, and we are back. I'm talking with Sheldon Pierce and Tom Heisinger about new releases this week but also about bigger news in the music world. And Sheldon, this has been, uh, let's just say, a rough time for for us music writers. Can you uh, give us a little recap of what's been going on the past couple weeks? Yeah, um, recently the the big news came down from the publisher Condé Nast that Pitchfork, the biggest music publication in the 2010s, has been folded into GQ, the men's magazine. Um, A lot of its staff was laid off. And this week, uh, more layoffs happened at the LA Times. And so we are seeing sort of a turning point in music writing, it seems. This comes on the heels of many layoffs from many publications in recent months and years. Um, Pitchfork in particular seems to be a big one because everyone sort of thought that that would be maybe the last domino to fall. It has been functioning as advertised and to see it sort of eviscerated in this way has raised questions about the state of music criticism, what this means, not just for the organization, but also for those of us that do this work and and love it. I want to take this to a personal place. So first, I want to just check in because you actually worked at Pitchfork for a while. Yeah, Pitchfork was actually the longest job I've ever had. A lot of friends and colleagues were let go over there. So it it was quite tough to to see that news break. Um, You know, of course, everyone got to be a critic once the blogosphere took flight in the early 2000s. And then with that came the shrinking (laughs) of the critical space uh, in newspapers across the country. But yeah. But while the internet is new, the shrinking space has been happening for a long time. I want to read you a 
quote from Virgil Thompson, one of the finest critics, uh, U.S. critics, whose career as a critic began around 1940. But in 1974, he writes, It is merely that the amount of everything is smaller. In no American city is there the number of papers that there were, say, in 1910 or 1920. Time was when the dailies of New York, Chicago, and Boston glowed with happy hatreds and partisan preachments. Today, there are too few in any city to sustain a controversy or reflect a consensus. Consequently, the tone just now is blander and less urgent. So this kind of this kind of hand-wringing has been going on for a while. The shrinking has been going on for a while. But the the shift from pitchfork um, in the spotlight to going somewhere in the pages of <laughs> in the in the metaphorical pages of GQ is very lamentable. Tom Heisinger bringing the history in, and I love that you did that. And you know what you're making me think about is is how something I haven't heard people talk about. There's been a lot, I should say, there's been a ton of kind of pouring one out uh, for Pitchfork, lots of, of uh, elegies published, even as Pitchfork is continuing. Um, yes. So clearly this is this is hitting a, a nerve with many, many different writers out there. Even Ezra Klein of the New York Times, I just have to interrupt myself to say like, Ezra Klein, I did not know you were a music nerd, but now I know because he wrote about how he keeps Pitchfork up as his home screen, home page or something, and he checks it every day. But Tom, you're, what you're saying is making me think about something that's been true for me my entire lengthy career as a music critic, which is this kind of feeling of being imperiled. <laughs> I think it's existential. We haven't really, we yeah. need to talk about that. I actually think critics, it is baked in to the critical project and the critical identity in particular, to feel like you could be toppled at any time, you could be rendered, you know, illegitimate and irrelevant at any time. Like <laughs> we critics live on a, on a weird tightrope, or at least maybe it's just my personal insecurities, but I feel, I feel like that. I do think it is sort of baked in the into the critical position to be the outsider and sort of feel like culture is operating at odds with you. Um, I that that does sort of run parallel to a very real truth in the 21st century, which is that there are fewer and fewer institutions that practice criticism in any means. So it's like those two things are operating in tandem. But yeah. Craig Jenkins, the music critic at Vulture, who wrote one of the remembrances of Pitchfork, he used to write for Pitchfork at one time, sort of shared some optimism amidst everything that I found helpful. He, I mean, he pointed out that every critical movement of the popular era happened in the shadow of like big corporations trying to destroy everything. Um, and that has been a function of criticism in its own way to rise up and counter to such destruction. Uh, so that really made me think that even if music writing goes the way of the dodo, that there is some kind of future for criticism in some other space, and it will always have a function in society. We should just maybe share what criticism even means to each of us, because 
it can that word can mean many different things you know it it can mean literally criticizing something speaking truth to power speaking truth to banality it can also mean uh, introducing great music to people uh, the the discovery function that word has become attached to it it can be historical context so like if you had to name an essence is it even possible to like identify an essence to what you do as a critic? Well, for me, there are really two things. And the main thing is that I really have a desire to spread the word about the music I love. And that's one, you can say that's criticism, but that that's at the heart of it for me because the music is so important to me. So I just want to like shout it from the rooftops kind of thing. But the second part of it is that actually the nuts and bolts of reviewing a performance or reviewing an album um, where you've got you've got a limited space and you've got um, uh, you got to put these words and thoughts together. It's like doing a crossword puzzle for me, which I love to do. And hopefully, you are doing some kind of service for the listener who was either at the concert or who is thinking about buying the record. Um, and that all that doesn't always mean that you're you're gushing about stuff because it's important to. Um, be honest when something doesn't work and it's not quite working or it doesn't work at all. Yeah. I think the puzzle aspect of it is, is sort of critical for me as a reader of criticism and a writer of criticism. I am always looking for criticism as a new entry point into a record, a new way to think about music or the context around music or the culture that created that music. I always feel like criticism has the power to sort of shift my perspective on a thing or open my ears to a thing in a new way, um, allow me to appreciate a thing that I didn't previously appreciate in a new way, or take a thing that I thought was great and say, actually, you know what, maybe it wasn't. Right. And and force me to reevaluate that thing. Um, there there are works of criticism that I disagreed with that allowed me to more strongly find my own position in defending that record. I was then able to say, well, this is actually what makes it great. In in sort of pushing back, I think the true value of criticism can be in discovery. Um, and there's also an aspect of Pitchfork that has been sort of like canon making and remaking. Um, thinking about their own archive, trying to rethink the music of this century and the previous century, um, as they did with their Sunday reviews, which were retrospective album reviews that went long thinking about sort of classics or things that were missing from their archives. I think criticism can work in that way as well, sort of thinking about posterity. Um, it'll be interesting to see how that carries on if music writing is sort of abolished because, I mean, video doesn't have that. Video is more ephemeral. Yeah. It doesn't have that sort of staying power that writing has. So I think it'll be interesting to see if criticism can carry that function into the next generation. I'm glad you brought that up, Sheldon, because uh, it, for for those anyone listening who might not be a devoted Pitchfork reader, we have to acknowledge that there was a huge change in what Pitchfork has been over its more than a quarter century of existence. It started out uh, kind of being, I guess, the organ of indie rock in some ways and like very yeah. white male, white straight male dominated. Um, 
But in recent years, um, I think Pitchfork has come to reflect the music world, the world of music makers and music listeners much more in that really under Pooja Patel, the editor-in-chief for the past five years, they have been uh, covering a huge variety of musical styles and uh, from a huge variety of perspectives. So for me, one of the things that Pitchfork specifically was about was kind of just embodying that diversity and that that range and i i do fear that under the tyranny of the one percent when i say that i mean the endless coverage of very mainstream pop stars and uh yeah their love lives their uh, their attendance at football games their Hmm, <laughs> their uh, their fashion lines and what their children are wearing. Anyway, that kind of coverage, I think, can overshadow what Pitchfork does. And I wonder, like, how does that live on? Some people are saying, okay, everything's going to go into little niches and uh, there'll be, you know, a million newsletters and blogs devoted to very esoteric styles of music. And that's okay. Is that okay if everything is just in a little corner with the 18 people who are into that thing? Well, I mean, it's it, first of all, it's interesting that you say that because in Pitchfork's transition from sort of bro-y indie rock bastion to this more diverse sort of wide-ranging look at music culture as a whole – there have been a lot of accusations of it being a place for poptimism, although I don't think a lot of people who use that word know exactly what ideas they're even pointing to. But this idea that like the Beyonce's and Taylor's and Ariana Grande's of the world were the focus of the publication, um, when that couldn't be further from the truth. They ran four reviews every day. A lot of them were artists that most people would have never heard of, artists that were not being covered anywhere else um, in the main music sphere. There's um, only but so many newsletters you can subscribe to. I think the the benefit of a publication like Pitchfork really was that it gathered so many really smart people who had so many sort of niche interests um, and allowed them to discuss, uh, dis like explore and uncover those for a wider audience. Pitchfork's power and notoriety was partly connected to uh, its writers' willingness to pan records and it's, its notorious numerical grading system, uh, there was this idea that if, a, if an artist got a low grade, it could tank their career. Also, if they got a very high grade, for example, when Radiohead released Kid A and got a 10 and an absolute rave that, you know, took them to a new level. But on the subject of pans, like, I don't know, the pan is an art form too. And, 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 I think that's one thing people is, are kind of mourning, even as some people are like, oh, I hate a pitchfork because they were always, you know, being so mean to people. But I, I feel like people are a little worried that uh, nobody's going to nobody's ever going to say another bad word about an artist again, you know. But I do think there is a valuable type of criticism that is willing to take a popular thing and sort of cut it down to size in a way that forces people to think about it beyond the fact that it's popular. 
um, with the emergence of many Stan armies, um, we've seen it. You talked about the pop 1%, but also thinking about like K-pop, um, thinking about some sort of like younger rappers, artists like Playboy Cardi, um, with fans sort of mobilizing around artists as their own defense unit and like targeting all naysayers, there is going to be this empty space in which nobody will be saying anything negative about artists, even when it's warranted. You know, when I started um, reviewing at the Post, then my mentor, Tim Page, said, you know, you have to be honest. You know, don't be mean. Don't try to slash anybody's career into pieces, but you have to be negative when it's warranted. Otherwise, no one will believe you as a critic. Um, can I just read you, speaking of Tim Page, my one of my favorite reviews. Oh, please do. His, it is, okay, it's a couple of paragraphs, so bear with me, but it is about Paul McCartney's Liverpool Oratorio. And this is from the top of the review. There's nothing particularly mysterious about writing a piece of classical music, especially when one commands the power and influence of a Paul McCartney. First, engage a competent arranger to take whatever feeble melodies you have on hand, ditties that would scarcely fill a nursery rhyme, and blow them up to grotesque proportions. Almost any chord progression sounds impressive when played and sung by a full orchestra and chorus. Then have your composer, uh, pardon, collaborator, flesh out the structure with preludes, interludes, and continuity using stock gestures borrowed from other musicians. Vaughn Williams is quite fashionable just now, and for that special showstopper finale, Mahler did very well with unfettered E-flat chorales for organ, orchestra, soloists, and chorus at full throttle. Throw in some ersatz Spanish music for spice, a few echoes of Italian opera, and some Latin for gravitas, and presto, faster than you can say, turn me on, dead man, <laughs> You have Liverpool Oratorio, a sprawling, mawkish, and excruciatingly embarrassing 90-minute exercise of the ego. Liverpool Oratorio received its North American premiere at Carnegie Hall on the Monday elegance night. of that, you know, the the just the fun of the way the language spills out is is so inspiring. And you could almost stop the review right there, <laughs> but he, we went on, of course. I, I think that that is a pretty good example, though, of like the value of having an expert, right? I mean, yeah. somebody like the layman could go into that performance and think it genius because they don't understand maybe the context that this critic is leaning into and pointing out. The critic knows all of these things. The critic knows the shortcomings of this artist, why they are not living up to the expectations, um, and why this music is underwhelming. And Sheldon, that is exactly the point of Virgil Thompson when he writes about the, the nuts and bolts of being a critic, because it's he's saying that the professional is responsible for knowing all that and setting all that out. And if you you can you can be you know, you can be maybe a dilettante and just and have your own opinions about things, but the responsibility of the critic is to know what they're talking about and to lay it out for one for thing the people are talking about a lot now is also the role of the critic in the actual music economy. Um, the critic as someone who uh, helps artists, you know, reach larger larger audience can be instrumental in artists like securing. Um, record deals or you know 
booking agents, you know, just to become more successful in their career. And I wonder uh, what you all think about that, because I think that's an important thing to acknowledge. And I can think of lots of examples throughout history. For example, uh, Phil Garland at Ebony Magazine writing about R&B music. Um, uh, Ralph Gleason, arguably the first rock critic uh, at the San Francisco Chronicle. He was a jazz critic and he started to cover rock music and and kind of helped legitimize that as a vocation. Um, Robert Shelton, quote unquote, discovering Bob Dylan in the clubs of New York City. Robert Hilburn discovering Elton John in the clubs of Los Angeles. <laughs> There's so many different mm-hmm, examples mm-hmm. of this. But now, you know, some people are saying, well, that discovery slash gatekeeping aspect of criticism is being served by people on TikTok, you know, uh, or just by algorithms. How important do you think that aspect of music writing is, the, the you know, us as players in the music industry itself? Is that something you all think about? Yeah, that reminds me, speaking of Tim Page, like his early um, admiration and support of Philip Glass's music, and then uh, closer to our own times, and in a very different non-kind of critical space, I'm thinking of our own Stephen Thompson's wild support of Bonnie Vare, and to your point, Sheldon, too, I mean, uh, uh, audiences would have found Bonnie right. Vare at some point, but the the real early, I think, really helped, um, I, I would think, helped that career get jump-started. Something that Bob Hilburn said to me when I started at the LA Times, he gave me one piece of advice. I was replacing him as chief critic at the LA Times, which was a huge man. That was like putting on a giant crown, because Hilburn is definitely one of the most uh, important uh, music journalists ever in terms of discovering artists and supporting artists. He said to me, and if you find an artist that you love, hang on to their leg. <laughs> and what he meant was, you know, discovery is exciting. Uh, being the first is exciting. But there is a lot of value when a critic has a long life alongside an artist to, you know, that relationship has a lot of value. Uh, I, I'm just going to say, like, it was a joy to see Jen Pelly reviewing the latest Slater Kinney record, in Pitchfork and Lindsay Zolad's reviewing it in the New York Times. And they actually disagreed. Like Jen loved the record. Lindsay had reservations. But these are two critics who have thought about Slater Kinney for the entirety of that band's career. They have grown up alongside Carrie and Corin, And their deep knowledge and that kind of emotional connection they have to the that band really enriches what they can say about the band and it enriches our view of the band to have them you know to have have them in dialogue with them for so long yeah i mean one of the interesting things about pitchfork is you could click through an artist page and see like five successive reviews at some points reviewed by the same critic Uh, somebody literally growing with the music and you could sort of chart their relationship with the art and the artist as they went. I, I myself probably wrote about young thug like five times while I was there. Um, And it's that familiarity 
that sort of breeds a real closeness with not just the music, but how the artist has grown, their trajectory, the way that the world is engaging with their music, and the way that the critic has sort of changed alongside the artist. Well, let me ask one question. We've, we've gone a lot of places with our conversation about criticism, and there's so many other places we can go, but I guess I do want to ask the impossible question, which is, how does music writing survive? How could the spirit of music criticism survive in different media, in short form video like we see on TikTok or in longer uh, video essays like we see on YouTube? Are either of you seeing anything in, in those spaces or also in the podcast space that you feel points to the future for what we do? Boy, I don't know. The old-fashioned side of me <laughs> um, <laughs> sticks to the old – I'm just going to call up Virgil Thompson again who said, um, reviewing unless it's in, an interplay between facts correctly stated and ideas about them fairly arrived at makes no point. And I'm not sure how much you can do uh, following those rules if you're on TikTok. Maybe you can. I think – yeah, I think it's in the very early stages. It's too early to sort of say for sure and I think it's probably too early to write. Uh, postscript for music criticism that is written yet. I I do believe maybe the future of written criticism is not monetizable, but I do always believe that it will exist in some form or fashion. I think it has too much utility to a person who really cares about music. The Washington Post critic uh, Chris Richards always says that there aren't actually that many people who really, truly love music, um, but music criticism is for those people. <laughs> um, and so I think as long as there are music lovers, as long as there are people who love to listen deeply, there will always be criticism to serve. Well, I'm, I'm here for it. I, I ride or die for music criticism whatever form it takes. If I have to stand on a corner and tell you my opinion, <laughs> come come find me. Come find me here in Nashville, Tennessee. I'll <laughs> I, I can just imagine you and with your like like the like the Peanuts cartoon. Criticism, five well, cents. I you know Lucy is my role model in all things. So <laughs> Well, it's been so, such a joy talking to y'all today. Uh, before we uh, go, let's uh, just mention a few other albums that are out today, January 26th. I'll tell you a couple I'm excited about. I'm excited about the third album from Willie Carlisle. It's called Critterland. He's a folk singer who has such compassion, is such a great storyteller, and with this record, uh, hits a new level of accomplishment. Uh, Daryl Scott produced it. It's a great listen. I'm also super excited uh, about the new one from Taurus, also known as Mackenzie Scott. She's a f always been a fave of mine for her daring, huge songs, uh, her beautiful voice. And this new one is actually called What an Enormous Room, and it fulfills uh, what that title describes. One of the most talented and controversial rappers working, the bullish Baton Rouge crooner Kevin Gates, returns with The Ceremony. He is as accomplished with a hook as he is with his bars. 
And after four years, the synth pop band Future Islands have a new album called People Who Aren't There Anymore. It's produced and mixed by previous collaborators Steve Wright and Chris Cody, the latter of whom produced the band's breakthrough 2014 album, Singles. Another record that's out today is uh, music by Philip Glass, played by Philip Glass. It's a very personal album, and like everyone else during the early days of the pandemic, Philip Glass spent a lot of time at home in his East Village apartment, and there is where he made this album playing his own piano, uh, recorded in the spring of 2021, so that makes him 84 when he made the record. Um, He turns 87 on January 31st. Also out today is a new record by Carlos Simon, who is the uh, composer in residence at the Kennedy Center. It's a symphony called Tales, a folklore symphony, four-movement piece performed by the National Symphony Orchestra that channels everything from Afrofuturism black comic books to spirituals to the legend of John Henry. Thanks for sharing those picks, friends, and thanks for a great conversation. It's always uh, heartening to commune with spirits who share my passion. And I value that about both of you. Thanks so much, Anne. Great to be here with you, Anne and Sheldon. And thanks to all of our listeners out there. This podcast was produced by Joaquin Kotler. We had editorial support from Jacob Gans. If you enjoyed our conversation today, I think you'll really like our newsletter. I'm writing the Saturday edition of the newsletter now, so you get to read my thoughts on a variety of subjects and uh, a lot of other great stuff is in there too. You can subscribe at npr.org backslash newsletter backslash music and watch this space for further conversations on music and all its beautiful forms. We'll be back next week. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Dignity Memorial. When your celebration of life is prepaid today, your family is protected tomorrow. Planning ahead is truly one of the best gifts you can give your family. For additional information, visit DignityMemorial.com. Support for NPR and the following message come from IXL Online. Is your child asking questions on their homework you don't feel equipped to answer? IXL Learning uses advanced algorithms to give the right help to each kid, no matter the age or personality. One subscription gets you everything. One site for all the kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And NPR listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com NPR. In this country, some truths aren't self-evident. In NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, a collection of stories as wide-ranging and real as the people who tell them, we celebrate the Black experience for all its soul and richness. Search NPR Black Stories, Black Truths wherever you get podcasts.